Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together, we're Pete and Gary's Military History. Podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Uh, I'm Peter Hart and with me is lovely old Gary Bain. He's getting older every day. I don't know. It's, it's quite depressing really when you look at him. Um, but uh, we're here today. And what are we doing today, Gary? Well, today, Pete, we're firstly being concerned about how tired you are with all the work you're doing. Yes. 12 hour days. Yeah, 12 hours on blood and sand. Not the song by those naughty lumps, which is also we've been working on, but the book on the Sudan, Egypt and the Sudan in the late 1890s. It, it's fabulous. And when's that going to be out? Don't know. <laughs> right, well, there goes the advert. Uh, today, Pete, we're continuing in our uh, story of the 16th DLI. Uh, this time it's the Battle of Germano Ridge. Yeah, this is another one of the... I found this really a... a, a uh, not heartrending, but a, a very emotive series. It's so uh, visceral. It's so right in your face, isn't well, it? Well, we did say that when we, we you know, we, we've had the tanks, uh, we've had the artillery, and we did say when we get to the infantry, it is going to be hard, and it is hard. And so, you know, reading some of this is hard. And there's no, there's no place for humour, I'm afraid. It's why we tend to be a bit daft at the start, or you tend to be daft. I'm very sensible. Well, yeah, our listening figures will have gone up about 20% just by that statement. <laughs> so, where were we? Well, uh, the, uh, the 16th DLI uh, had, uh, they'd had a brief rest at Saladusia, uh, and it was brought to an abrupt end on 10th of September 1944. Uh, why is that? Well, the fighting had moved into the Germano sector. Uh, now, what is the Germano sector? What, what would you say it was? Uh, well, it's it's a steep rocky ridge line which runs from the villages of uh, Villa and Germano up through the almost connected small village of Borgo. Yeah, now the ridge then runs up to the round-topped hill, 414. I'm going to put a map up this time, I've got to. <laughs> on which stood a single farmhouse. There was a slight dip down to a cemetery between Hill 414 and the highest point of Hill 449, which was marked by an old white cross on the summit. Now, Germano and Villa had already been cleared by the 56th Division. You've got to remember, we, we're very appreciative that we may choose one battalion in the 16th, but everybody else is doing great work. 
Uh, and uh, and the rest of the ridge has just been captured by the 2nd, 4th King's Own Yorkshire Light Infantry and the 6th Lincolns of 138 Brigade. That's part of 46th Division, the same as the 16th DLR. And that had been done on the afternoon of 10th of September. Uh, everything going well then? No, the situation was still precarious in the extreme. That night, the 16th DLI was to relieve the 2nd, 4th King's Own Yorkshire Light Infantry with C and D companies occupying the villa with the battalion headquarters, while A and B companies moved into Germano itself. Now, unfortunately, that very same night... Um, the Germans launched... Uh, uh, what, what did they launch, Gary? Well, it was an effective surprise attack. and uh, A counter-attack! <laughs> and they wrested back control of both Hill 449 and Hill 414, even penetrating as far as the northern buildings of Borgo. Now, uh, the, the Germans, they're just not going to give up... Um, uh, Germano uh, uh, Ridge without a real battle, a real battle. Now, as they're preparing to move up the track to Germano, uh, Company Sergeant Major Les- Leslie Thornton uh, and uh, his major uh, uh, of C Company, uh, Pat Casey, they had a difficult decision to make. What, what, why did, what, what, what could this difficult? What, what's going on, Gary? Well, this was when one of uh, their men claimed to have lost his nerve and was unable to go on. There was a difficult balance to be struck. After all, none of them wanted to go, but they had to. Yet what good would be served by forcing a broken man into action? And this is what Company Sergeant Major Leslie Thornton of C Company says. This young lad came to me and said, Sergeant Major, I can't go up to the line. Uh, I say, what do you mean you can't go up the line? He said, well, if I go up the line, I won't come back. I'll get killed. I said, don't be silly. You've got as much chance as everybody else. No, I won't come back. Well, come on, get in front of the major then. I took him in front of the major, Pat Casey from Jarrow. I said, he won't go up the line. The padre was visiting. He said to the boy, look, son, who's going to do your job if you don't go up the line? Your mates? The major said, well, you're going up the line with me. I'll take you up on the end of this. And he held up his pistol. Anyway, that lad went up next day and he was killed by a shell fire. By a shell fire. Premonition or not, I don't know. With him was a good sergeant, uh, Sergeant Dabner. He was killed as well. You feel, should I have sent him up or should I have sent him sick? But when you lose a few men, then every man is necessary to do a job of work. And I think I see everybody's point of view in that. I think I see the lad's point of view. I think I see the uh, sergeant major's point of view. I see the officer's point of view and the padre's point of view. Uh, is there an answer? Is there an easy answer to this? No, there's not. But, the, you know, they're right. Who Who is going to do his job if he doesn't? That's the That's the bottom line. Somebody has to do it. And poor lad, I feel for him. Anyway, the men of uh, B Company uh, set off. Uh, they're marching up the track that that comes. It's going up towards Germano. Jimmy climbs up. Yes, I do. <laughs> Just before they get to the village of Villa, that's on the way. Richard Hewlett's platoon took a short break, and there's a there's a quote from Richard Hewlett, and you're going to tell us what he says. We stopped at this barn and brewed up, and I was having a cup. And a private of uh, headquarters company, a company runner or something like that, was sitting beside me. A mortar bomb landed right in front of us, not 15 yards away. We both fell back, forced by the blast. He was blown to bits. His legs were broken. His arms were broken. Everything was broken. All the contents of his cup of tea went all over me. And I thought, oh, my goodness, it's blood. But it wasn't. It was tea. I thought I must have been hit. 
I thought, oh my God, it's the end of my war. I couldn't believe it. It missed me. He was as near as touching me and he was blown to bits and I didn't get a scratch. I couldn't believe it. Most extraordinary. There was straw on the floor of this barn, so there was a horrible mess of tea, blood and straw. How do you react to that? Well, how can you react? You can't. I, I mean, that's awful. Now, they passed through Villa and continued to climb up to Gimano, that, uh, the top of the ridge. Um, I think I may have got that muddled up, but never mind. Uh, almost as soon as they arrived, B Company came under a torrent of shells. And this is what Corporal William Ver of 12 Platoon B Company said. Our platoon got in this cellar. There were shells landing all the time, clouds of dust coming in, and there was nothing you could do. You kept hearing cries above, stretcher bearer, stretcher bearer, calling for stretcher bearers when somebody else had been hit. A chap was laid there. He'd just been covered with a gas cape. His lips were protruding through it, just as though the gases out of his stomach had dissolved the cape. There must have been people buried in some of the ruins because it stank a terrible stench. It was hot weather. The body soon putrefied. It was a sickly sweet smell. If you think now, you can actually bring it back. Can you imagine that poor lad in his 80s able to bring back the smell of corpses? Mm, I can't actually. That, that's horrific. On the bare, rocky hillside, cover was at a premium, so they were forced uh, to take what shelter they could in the stone-built houses and farms. But Hewlett and his men encountered an unusual natural obstacle. And this is Lieutenant Richard Hewlett of 12 Platoon. Well, uh, 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 yes. Uh, <laughs> poor old Richard Hewlett. <laughs> this cow was stopping us getting into the barn. We tried to push it further in, and it just wouldn't. When the shelling started, we thought, well, we've got to get some cover. I said, there's only one thing to do, to kill this cow. And we shot it, put quite a few bullets into it. As it started to die, we pushed it further in so that we could all get into the barn. I felt so out of touch with everybody that I left my platoon there and went round to Gimano. I went to see Jimmy Coots to try and find out what was happening. The house on the left had been largely destroyed and Jimmy Coots was sort of underneath the house. He had his company headquarters there. He said, bring your platoon up to the village and occupy that house on the right and send out a patrol to see what's going on ahead. I went back to my platoon. They were being shelled like mad and I ducked down waiting for it to finish. I heard somebody near me hit by a shell and I never found them. I could hear them dying a horrible noise. I don't know who it was. Then we moved forward and we occupied a house right on the very edge of the village. We were in a sort of semi-basement occupying a defensive position in case of a counter-attack. Now, the, 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 the B Company, that, that's his company, had already suffered, but Coots was a B Company commander, they'd already suffered a lot of casualties, several, uh, and it was evident that some of the men aren't just up to it anymore. They're not physically or mentally strong enough to endure it anymore, and we don't blame them at all, but th this is what Private Eric Murray of B Company said. There was a lot lying dead in there. They got their heads blown off. There was packs and that covered in bloody blood. Bill verses. If you want any tea, they've got the tea and sugar. We went through the village a bit. We got shelled. We got into this house down to the cellar. cellar. I got dysentery. Things were just going straight through me. I had to crawl away all the way back down. I ended up in an ambulance. Uh, his dysentery did actually clear up quite quickly, uh, but but he developed while he was back in medical care, developed really bad shell shock symptoms. And then 
he had a full blown nervous breakdown. Uh, he was medically downgraded to B1 and, and, uh, posted as a POW camp guard. Uh, he never returned to active service. Uh, and then all this horror. And then the, uh, just enjoy this punters. Hello punters. Uh, this is the only moment of humour in it, and that's got a, a really dark downside. Uh, there was a moment of pure surrealism in, in one of the buildings, and this is Lieutenant Richard Hewlett of 12 Platoon B Company again. I met Sergeant Jerison. He was A Company, I think. I was probably asking for information. I remember his standing to attention as he spoke to me, and there were chickens all over the place. One was on each shoulder, and one on top of his steel helmet. It didn't seem to worry him at all. Extraordinary sight. The chickens needed company. You couldn't push them away. They came back. I don't know whether they wanted food or they just didn't want to be shelled by themselves. I thought, this is something. We're going to laugh about it one day. Now, the dark downside of that is that the next day, Joseph Jerison, Sergeant Joseph Jerison, was killed. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know... Um, well, there's a sharp contrast between laughing at friendly chickens and the stench of the corpses that littered Germano from the previous fighting. It was enough to turn anyone's stomach. And this is Company Sergeant Major Leslie Thornton of C Company. The stench was terrible. We passed British and German soldiers, great shell holes, uh, uh, bloated, uh, great shell holes in them. They got ripped to bits. Bloated from, bit, through, from lying there three days, more or less. We got up into this building. The company commander said, right, oh, we'll stop here. The rations will be coming up. I said to two lads, right, come on, we'll go and get their the rations. I had my Tommy gun and they had their rifles. We went down and there was two petrol cans full of water and the rations. Now I carried my Tommy gun and the two cans of water. Now a can of water was four gallons. Now they got heavy and by the time I'd passed all these bodies, <laughs> what a stench. I had to drag myself up backwards up the incline to get these tins of water up to where the major was. They issued the rations out. It was steak and kidney pudding, and I couldn't eat a bite. The stench from those bodies and the terrible sights, I could have wept. It was lovely steak and kidney pudding, but I couldn't eat it. I was just about sick. Well, death truly was all around them. Now, this is the story of the 16th DLI, but it would be invidious not to reference and commend the heroic fighting of the 2nd, 6th King's Own Yorkshire Light Infantry, who time and time again made heroic attempts to cross the bullet-swept wasteland between Germano and Hill 449. Ah, but it's all in vain. It just doesn't seem to be physically, humanly possible, does it? Uh, and at the end of that awful day, Hill 449 is still in German hands. Uh, uh, and they're looking down, and there's a company of the 4th uh, uh, King's Own Yorkshire Light Infantry uh, down below them in that cemetery, I told you, in the dip, uh, or you told me, actually. Uh, by this time, three battalion headquarters were located in Germana, as it, it had reasonably strong stone buildings, uh, which were... Probably the only feasible safe harbour, if you like, for, for, for things. Now, uh, at this point, uh, Tom Lister remembered being ordered to drive Colonel Dennis Worrell's jeep up to that village, to Germana. Now, Worrell was clearly somewhat stressed, and who can blame him with his battalion being battered to buggery? And this is what uh, Private Tom Lister, MT Section, Headquarters Company, 16th DLR, said. Colonel Worrell's own jeep was out of commission and he told the Captain Quartermaster that he would have his and grabbed me to drive it. He got the reputation of Mad Worrell. He said, drive up to Germano. We got round the corner all right at the bottom, got halfway up the hill and there was a sudden shower of mortar bombs. 
It wasn't a very wide road. There was a deep ditch on the left-hand side, and I stopped the jeep, which was a natural thing to do, and dived in the ditch. He played holy hell with me. Get back in the jeep! Drive on! I'll tell you when to stop! He got into the ditch with the idea of digging me out and we got back on the road and the entire windscreen had disappeared and there was water squirting out of the radiator. But it went and he insisted on going on. I got behind the remnants of a house at the bottom end of the village and he pressed on. He threatened me with God knows what. Sometime after, he said I'd probably done the right thing. But in the heat of the moment, he'd been very annoyed. That's human nature all over that, that quote. Now, they have to try something else. They, they can't get across this, uh, this gap, this, this, uh, this valley up to Hill 449. So what was planned was 139 Brigade uh, was going to act as a flank guard, push round to the right of the ridge, and the 16th DLI would feel their way across a series of ridges and gullies which uh, led down from the Gimano Ridge height down to the Conca River, which is below it on that side. Now, this was on the 12th of September, and meanwhile, the 138th Brigade would renew the main assault on Hill 449. The next two days proved a chastening experience for Company Sergeant Major Leslie Thornton, and this is what he said. We made an attack on a group of buildings on this little hill. The platoons were spread out to attack. We got there without a lot of trouble, but when we got in, the Germans gave us hell, knocking the buildings down bit by bit. The company headquarters were the only ones in the building. The platoons were outside in open ground. The OP gunner, that's observation post gunner, or, or observation party gunner, officer was wounded with shell fire. I heard him say, I'm choking, I'm choking. Obviously he was dying. One of my corporals came in, shot through the foot. He was in the corner moaning, and the company commander was saying, for goodness sake, try and keep him quiet. Then Pat Casey, that's company commander he got on the wireless to the co and said somebody's got to do something about this we are being absolutely cut to bits by shell fire he must have got through and there was counter battery fire we heard our own guns firing over the top of us and clearing the enemy out importance of artillery remember those south nuts as ours um now, being under shell fire like that was a terrible, earth-shattering experience that physically and mentally battered the men. Only when the German shell fire died down could they actually move forward, and Company Sergeant Major Leslie Thornton goes on. I had my company headquarters following me, the Major and the platoons uh, on it, uh, with him. As I went up, there was a German soldier sitting in a pool of water just off the path. Obviously, he was very badly wounded. I was going over to him, and the Major said, Don't, Sergeant Major, don't go, leave him. I had to leave him. Well, that, that sounds rough, but what, what do you think was going on well, here? Well, I think Major Pat Casey obviously feared the man might have a concealed weapon or grenade. Now, yeah, that, that, I, I want to make it clear, because that's something that happens, doesn't it? Yeah. Now, moments afterwards, it was irrelevant, as their positions were counterattacked by a strong force of Germans, and Company Sergeant Major Leslie Thornton says this. Well, they were too much for us, so we had to get back quickly. We were caught unawares. The Major said, get back, get the men back, because we knew that we would have got slaughtered. As we went back, we heard this noise. It was a funny noise, and we knew what it was. It was the Nebelwerfers winding up. They were electrically controlled six-barreled mortars, and they were horrors. They caught us in the middle of this open ground. We were all flat on our faces in a ditch full of water. When you get a battery of six-barreled mortars, it's all hell let loose. They stopped, and we got up again. I looked over, and the German soldier had gone. He'd been blown to pieces by his own mortars. 
We got back into this building and started to reorganise ourselves, but it was a sticky time. When you take a place, you don't see many Germans. You don't see your enemy a lot. You only see them when they're running away. You can't say how many you've killed. Your shell fire killed a lot. It counts for most casualties in a war like that. And we've said this many times, artillery is king of the battlefield uh, right through this time. The counter-attacking Germans then seemed to pull back, and after a short period to reorganise, the C Company advance once more resumes. Crossing a small river, they came across another farm building, and this is once more Company Sergeant Major Leslie Thornton. It was a building with an open front to it, or an open back. It was like a stable. We bedded down there. We didn't go to sleep. We just stayed there. And then he started again, shelling us. God, we were shelled rotten. A few hours later, the company commander got through to the CO. He said, well, look, you're being relieved. Just get the men out of the uh, out of the road. I out of the way. I got the men in this cellar. It was pretty deep. I started to detail my sentries, but I didn't put them upstairs. I put the sentry at the bottom of the cellar steps. They started shelling again, and it went on all night. We were safe. Next morning, it stopped. We got up. And there was no building there at all. There was just the cellar. You can imagine what would have happened if I'd put the sentry on at the top or we'd stopped in the building. It was completely demolished. And on that note, we'll just take a short break. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. D Company was charged with making forward patrols round the side of the Germano Ridge. As an acting platoon sergeant, John Lewindon was ordered to carry out a recce and he was soon made aware of the grave nature of his responsibilities. And this is Sergeant John Lewindon of 18 Platoon D Company. 
We set off and we hadn't been going long when all of a sudden, to the right, there was a burst of machine gun, a smizer. George Pawley was on the right. Everyone went down, of course, and then there was a single rifle shot. I knew what that was. That was one of ours. I made my way over and one of the blokes in that section said George Pawley had been shot. He's down there. There's a German down there as well. They're both dead. I thought, this is a brilliant start. George was lying on his back and he had this burst all across him. He must have been dead before he hit the ground. I got hold of the Lance Corporal with the sections and said, well, you'll have to take the section now. We have to keep going. With that, off we went again. Now, they're advancing, moving towards a, a row of trees, and Lewin, Lewindon it called a stop about 50 yards in, uh, in front of these trees, and they were ready for the next, the next bound forward. And this is what John Lewindon says. There was a lot of shouting across to the right. The ground was sloping down to the riverbed, and the section on the right had found one or two jerrys over there, hit some of them, and chased the rest of them out. I called them back. I said... Let them go. Stop where you are. Don't go too far down. In the meantime, Corporal Goldston had gone forward. I heard a lot of hullabaloo from his section. I heard a grenade go. I made my way over there and he got right to the fringe of the trees. It was him who'd thrown the grenade. He'd found a mortar. He'd destroyed that. The Jerrys were on the run going down the hill. I called Goldston back, but he never heard and kept on going. The Germans, one or two of them, stopped running turned round and grabbed hold of him. He was outnumbered and took him with them. There was a sound of a lorry starting, so they must have had a vehicle of some sort down there, down by the river somewhere. Now, uh, he he retraced his steps. Uh, Goldstone, uh, I looked, he was reported missing and was later listed as a prisoner of war. Uh, Now, uh, there was another soldier there, uh, uh, Tony Cameron, Corporal Tony Cameron, uh, was with A Company. Now, he was uh, an inexperienced lad. Um, he'd, he'd been in, uh, and he, he wasn't really an infantryman. He'd been in an anti-aircraft unit. Anyway, he, he finds himself on a similar mission, uh, and he's trying to try. They're all doing the same thing. They're trying to clear the Germans from the northern slopes of Germano Ridge, and he's accompanied by his platoon commander, Second Lieutenant Frank Johnson, uh, now, who he'd known before. They'd actually both been anti-aircraft gunners together, uh, and this is what Tony Cameron says. He's a company. I don't, I don't know really what we were supposed to do, except that we had to go and clear this farmhouse down in a dip towards the Jerry. We were on one hill, Jerry was on the other hill. Jerry must also have been down in the valley. Frank, as Frank Johnson said, it would help if you gave defensive fire on the on the stretch of farm track at the bottom of the Jerry's hill. I had a section with my own lance corporal and a corporal in charge of the bread. We moved out that night and went around that way and came along this farm track between our positions in Germano and the Jerry's position on the hilltop where there was a big black cross. It was quiet, so I told my lads, right, line up here, get the Bren down here, Frank had said. Now you'll hear us move into that farmhouse, which is right in the dip. There was a lot of bangs and cracks went off. You could hear grenades exploding. I said, fire on the farmhouse. We started firing and then the bloody Spandau machine gun fire came at us. We were on the track and they must have had the, they must have had fixed lines somewhere on the hill. I rolled back over. It was only about a foot high on the path against the hill. I never saw where the other lads went. Everybody disappeared, dispersed. Luckily, nobody was hit. 
I lay there for quite a while. I had a Tommy gun hugged in on me and the Spandau bullets were hitting along the track. I could practically see them, the splashes of dirt. When they stopped, I lay there quite a while. No idea where the rest of the platoon was or anything. I didn't know whether to follow Frank, but I couldn't because there was no one to follow him with. I didn't know which way he'd gone, so I went back the way I'd, the, the way I'd come. Now, when uh, Corporal Cameron got back, he was in for a bit of a surprise. Yeah, <laughs> and this is what Tony Cameron says. I got back on my own, and there was half my section still there. Where the other half went, I don't know. They must have done the same as me, doubled back, and the other half just disappeared. At the time, the infantry were like that. Lads who'd been right through Italy, they'd had a belly full of it. At the first real thump, a lot of them used to disappear. After that experience, I thought, well, I can look after myself, Better as a private. It's no good me being a corporal when I can't control these blokes. Never mind looking after them. I'm going to be a private, the same as them, and look after me. I asked to revert the rank right back to private after Germana. It seemed to me sensible to find out how to be an infantryman from scratch. Never mind starting halfway up. I wanted someone else to have the responsibility. I didn't want to have charge of a bunch of blokes that I couldn't trust. I'd sooner be under a bloke myself and know that he could trust me. To be a team leader is no good if the team aren't behind you. That's interesting, and it shows that. as something we haven't really talked about a lot, but it does occur a lot in uh, units have been in battle a lot. They start to, well, they used to, in the first world, what they call it shell hole dropping. Yeah, but it also shows a, a level of self-awareness. He, he knows, you know, he's got to learn the role and, and he knows it. I remember he was an intelligent bloke. Now, at this stage, Ronnie Sherlaw, that's uh, Major Ronnie Sherlaw at this time, was beginning to encounter some quite natural reluctance among his subalterns and senior NCOs to lead patrols. So it's not just, uh, it's not just privates, yeah. And, and this is what Major Ronnie Sherlaw of D Company said. From that position, we kept sending out small fighting patrols to deal with bits of German opposition in the area some 200 to 300 yards ahead. All the time we were in that position, we were shelled. There was never a major attack, but there were skirmishes as we were attempting to deal with our advanced positions. It was very unpleasant indeed. The biggest difficulty was we had to continue sending out these fighting patrols and of course it got to the stage where the chaps were very reluctant to go. You would say to a platoon commander, uh, I think you'll have to take a couple of your sections this time. He would say, oh God, I've been out so many times. I don't remember, I don't ever remember anybody saying, I won't go, but they had to be persuaded. There was a job to do and the job had to be done. By the time we came out, we were too weak to do very much at all. I think as a company, as a company, we lost something like 18 to 20 killed. We certainly lost a good deal more than that wounded. When we came out, only about 12 of us walked out. That may be a slight exaggeration, but I think you're getting the picture there. Now, these two days struggling around the Germano Ridge proved to be one of Ronald Elliott's worst experiences of a terrible war. And this is Private Ronald Elliott of D Company. Mortar shells were raining down upon us. I always remember there was a bloke who was dying to one side of this path. Nobody could do anything for him, or nobody did. He was just bleeding away. 
People were being wounded and there was just this rain of mortar shells. Now, you know, I'm very fond of Ronald Elliott. I remember him. He's about the age I am when I interviewed him. Uh, I am now. Uh, wonderful chap. Now, he's a signaller. Uh, what's his responsibility? It's to maintain communications, whether by wireless or by telephone cable, between the, his uh, company commander and the battalion headquarters. Uh, what do you think Elliot preferred? Well, he preferred the wireless uh, because it was simpler and safer. Why is it safer? Well, telephone cables were uh, quite easily broken. By mortars and things, I suppose. So what does he say? It was a gully, a very steep gully indeed, on the far far side of this hill. As a company, we were spread along this gully, no more than about a couple of yards wide, very steep shoulders on it. It was beautifully designed for mortar fire. The Germans had it marked out as a mortar target, and it was hell. We took the radio set in, and we were on the radio. The first night, two or three lads from base came over the lip of the hill and said, we've brought you a cable and a telephone handset. I said, you can get bloody stuffed with that. I don't want it. They said, you've got to take it. So we were in touch on the telephone and we shut down the set. Of course, during the night, the line went DIS. Dis, disabled, yeah. As I knew it would do because the shelling around there was absolutely horrible. There was only Jackie Wells and I there. I said to Jackie Wells, all right, I'll go back and look at the bloody thing. I wandered back with this line in my hand, and at the top of the hill there was a break in the line. This was in the pitch dark. I looked around for the other part of the line, and it had been blown by a shell yards and yards away. I found it. I've got that in that hand, got the other one in the other, and the two lines were about a yard apart. I said, well, shit it. I'll bugger off. I'm not going to do anything about this. So I threw the cable away and went back down into the gully and told Giff, footer, your bloody cables out of order. We'll have to go back on the radio. They weren't at all charmed in headquarters. I said, well, if you want to repair it, you can bloody repair it. We were in a hellish position, really. It was absolutely impossible. We weren't serving any useful purpose and were just being chopped to pieces here. I was quite panicky, I guess. It must have, uh, what an ordeal it must have been. Uh, that reminds me of John Palmer and Signal when he was wounded at Passchendaele as a very famous oral history bit of, of uh, he was just too tired and knackered to. But they've got to repair this. They've, they've got to repair it or get the wireless going. Uh, anyway, suddenly you'd think, so how does this dramatic battle end? How does it end suddenly? What happens suddenly? Well, suddenly it ends. Yeah. Uh, Is that due to the DLI, 16th DLI? Well, no, the 16th DLI had not been the main assault. They were the flanking operation. And other units gradually encircled and encroached on Hill 449, so that in the end, the Germans had no option but to pull out. Now, as so often with the infantry, the 16th DLI did not see the end of the story. They'd played their part and were then moved out to a well-earned rest. They needed it, Gary, and uh, so do we after the uh, emotional trauma of some of those quotes. Yeah, it's, it's quite difficult that today, I think, at times. Yeah, it's uh, painful, and it gets worse, you'll be pleased to know. I mean, the, the DLI, they have a, the infantry, they're always up against it, aren't they? It's, a, it's very, very hard. OK, cheers, Gary. Cheers, Pete. <laughs> 
Thanks for listening to the show. Blah, blah, blah. If you'd like to support blah, us, blah, you can now buy us a coffee. Blah, blah, Visit www.buymeacoffee.com backslash PGMH. Or visit www.blahblahblahblahblah. And we'd be jolly grateful. Cheers. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?